You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Joe Matthews is the Irvine Senior Fellow at the New American Foundation. He's the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy, and a columnist for The Daily Beast. Mark Paul is the Senior Scholar and Deputy Director of the California Program at the New America Foundation. He was the Deputy Treasurer of California and the Editorial Page Editor of the Sacramento Bee. Their new book is California Crack-Up how reform broke the golden state, and how we can fix it. Gentlemen, I'd like to congratulate you on writing this wonderful book, which I really feel should be, told me a whole bunch of stuff I wish I had learned in high school because I might have voted more uh, sanely in in a long intervening history. Um, And one of the things that struck me, there's a, get pretty far into this book, but I think you get, there's a sentence, single sentence that gets to the heart of the book, which is political reform is what we do in California to break our hearts. And it's, we've been doing it for a long time, haven't we? We have, um, going back to our very beginnings, but we've always done it in a great, great hurry. Um, you know, and that's part of our character. I mean, this is a dynamic, fast-moving state, and that has served us well in a number of ways, that our growth, our economy, our culture, um, you know, that's a wonderful thing. But in governance, it's it's helpful to have moments where you sort of slow down, sit down, and try to figure out how all the pieces uh, work together. But we've never done that. We've never had that sort of classic founding moment. We've always been a state um, that has tried to do you know, things in a hurry and has had a real weakness for silver bullets. You know, if we just do this one thing, if we pass this one initiative or make this one, you know, political reform change that's fashionable, you know, everything will fall into place. And instead what's happened is all of the different reforms have sort of grown on each other. And, and you know, I think the the uh, metaphor that, that Mark often uses, the, Wist- the Winchester Mystery House. It's like adding another room onto the house, and the house becomes, you know, less, less livable as a result. Now, uh, Mark, uh, one of the things that I love about this book is I think this is a really well-written history of California that, that talks about things that I have just never known before. And it's interesting. You talk about the five waves of constitutional change. And our first constitutional convention was almost like a joke, wasn't it? I mean, they just got together a bunch of people down in Monterey. Yes, it was. It was the first example of of doing things in a hurry in California. The 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 military governor assembled uh, a, a group of people. Um, uh, most of them were were new to the state. Uh, they didn't know each other. Um, they uh, basically uh, copied and pasted uh, most of their work from the Constitution of the state of Iowa, which had the advantage of it was one of the constitutions that had been most recently passed, and it was also one of the shortest. Um, and <laughs> And when they came to the to the question about how you actually pay for government, they they left that out because they there was a committee of the of that of that group that met and and uh, their records are are available to us and they and they they reported back that that um, you know we do, really in California we don't have public 
goods. We don't have courthouses or jails or bridges or, or roads. But on the other hand, you know, almost everybody here is, is either poor, they don't have any money which which they could pay taxes, or what money they have is in gold. And even if we were to institute taxes, it's not clear that we could find anybody who would be a tax collector because everybody was off in, in the gold field. So the decision was made that they would just punt that question and maybe Washington would help out once they became a state. So as you can see, we've really gotten very far in our hundred, last 160 years. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. We weren't even a state when we were like declaring our own statehood. We are California as the golden state and full of gold. They knew they were going to be... Uh, become a state. and But you talk about uh, it took them, what, almost uh, 30 years to, to bring about the greatest financial disaster in the history of, of uh, California, which was the first revision of the Constitution. Well, I'm, I'm not sure financial disaster. It came that, that, that the big revision of the Constitution uh, in 1870 and 1879, mm-hmm. 30 years after the first Constitution, um, it actually was precipitated in part by a lot of financial turmoil in the mm-hmm. decade of the 1870s. There's some historians that suggest that, you know, maybe as many as half, you know, that, that maybe as many as half of Californians at one point in that decade lost basically most of their wealth. Um, so it was Sounds a... Sounds pretty familiar. It, it, well, <laughs> it, much worse than this is proportionally um, then, and they had less wealth to lose, uh, most of them. So it was a moment where there were actually several attempts three real big attempts between 1850 and 1878 to to reform that first constitution because it was so clearly unworkable mm-hmm. it just didn't explain a lot of things like how you how the government would be organized in any real detail and eventually um it, it came to pass in 1878 1879 driven by largely by a by labor interests in San Francisco, the Kearneyites, uh, the Kearneyites, yeah, and they they were um, they were different kinds of folks. I and mean, it was a, it was a very powerful but very short-lived labor movement, um, animated, um, I think, by the Financial Times, animated by a real hatred of the Chinese, a sense that the Chinese were economic competitors. Um, and when they came to Sacramento, ultimately the Kearneyites didn't actually have the majority. The sort of the a, a broad coalition of different parties and different groups that didn't like the Kearneyites actually had the majority. But the Kearneyites were more cohesive. Um, they voted together in that in that group, and they had more than a third. And one of the rules of the convention was, and it's sort of funny because of, or you know, <laughs> it puts one in it's mind chilling. given the problems of supermajorities and two thirds in our current system. But one of the problems of that convention was that you needed a two thirds vote to do much of anything, and the Kearneyites just sort of did, you know, with great discipline what sometimes legislative Republicans do now, which is they held together and made their demands and vo- and stopped everything until they got what they wanted. Um, and and they got a lot of what they wanted. Not that it was particularly coherent. It was still very slapdash, that gathering. Um, a lot of th- just throwing ideas together, no real editing or putting together the document. The moment where everyone came together for the first time about a day 127 of this gathering and said, you know, let's go through this thing and edit it and make it sort of coherent and make sure it all fits together. Everyone was tired by that point. They hadn't been paid in about four weeks. So they all adjourned and went home without reading through the thing once to all together. Uh, Mark, you know, uh, at, over the next 60 years, 
you guys talk about um, the effects of the jury that cannot be fixed. And one of the things that really struck me was that the initiative and the referendum and the recall have been in California's constitution from the beginning. And that, I didn't really didn't know that. Well, not from the beginning, but from 1911. So mm-hmm. where this is the 100th anniversary this year of the of the passage of the of the initiative referendum and, and recall. And the, the progressives, um, as you say, Lincoln Steffens, who was a famous journalist born in, in, and raised in Sacramento, uh, uh, described it as the public opinion is the jury that couldn't be fixed. And they were operating in a time in which the, the, the trusts and the railroad and others had this great power in America. Life and they saw the the people and public opinion as the as the antidote to that. Now, un- unfortunately for for them, that that view was fixed into the Constitution just at the moment that ra- uh, ra- the radio appeared, that public relations, uh, advertising, and soon television. Um, they they instituted the, the initiative right at the moment where, we, in fact, we learned uh, that public opinion could, in fact, be fixed uh, very easily. And and that the initiative process helped galvanize uh, here in California really uh, something that has spread across the country, which is the rise of, of political consultants um, who ran the who, who quickly were uh, came into being to run the campaigns for initiative campaigns uh, in, in California. I mean, in some ways. The initiative uh, in California gave rise to the modern form of of how politics is conducted across America. That's such an interesting perception. Now, we our next uh, stop in history, and one of the things I like about the way you guys write this, I think you do a great job at editing history. Keeping this is a really uh, an entertaining and good book to read because you get that. So I'd like you to talk about the way you kind of abridged history to make sure that we can get, see the through line of all this, because um, it's it, in ni- November 1933, that's when the supermajority first came into, into, the, into the picture. Explain um, how that happened and what, what that is. Well, in, in, in 1933, during the Great Depression, um, in coping with the state's financial problems, um, they, uh, uh, the, the uh, controller of the state uh, and, and a member of the legislature came up with a plan for how you, we could cope with the financial crisis. And one of the elements of the plan was to put into the Constitution a requirement that, that the budget, uh, if, uh, if the budget increased by more than 5% uh, from budget to budget, and back then it was a two-year budget, that it would require a two-thirds vote in order to pass it. Um, this was at the time was actually it wasn't even really discussed in the ballot pamphlet, uh, which it was a minor element of a plan which was much more uh, uh, oriented toward how how you could collect the next tax revenue at a time of the Great Depression where where governments all over the state were were faced with bankruptcy. So it was a, a sort of an in, inadvertent thing that got very little attention, but became the start in California of the of of what we describe in the books of all these fiscal whips and chains where we lock into the Constitution two-thirds vote requirements and spending mandates uh, and taking all of the, making it more difficult for the legislature to actually budget for the state. And Joe, this is, was really the beginning, too, of the time when campaigns became more important almost than legislation, that, that the, the people in the legislature knew that they had to uh, focus on getting reelected more than they had to focus on doing actually doing anything. I think 
you know, campaigns have always been important. Um, the, the, this change, you know, after, in the period essentially between 1910 and the beginning of the, of the Second World War, um, you know, you see what Mark talked about, the rise of these professional campaign consultants, um, you know, in part because there are all these campaigns now that aren't allied with a party. So the party has no reason to run, and our parties were always pretty weak um, and, and became weaker in this period. Um, and, it, and I think what it meant was that it, it put a lot more pressure on the individual um, person rather than the party mm -hmm. to to be out there um, running. You, you, were, you were sort of much more alone yourself in, in, uh, as a legislator in the state. And also, you know, the, 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 so the state was growing very, very quickly, I mm. mean, throughout all this period. And that meant that it was harder and harder to run all the time because at the speed at which population was growing, but, you know, we haven't changed the size of our legislative district since 1879. <laughs> so each time people went back, they were, they, were, they were trying to reach a lot more people. So things were just sort of naturally getting more difficult, more involved, more expensive. Um, and, you know, that's, that's been a trend that, that uh, continues to this day. Uh, now... Uh we are our next stop in, in in this timeline is 1962 um with proposition 7 in the constitution revision commission uh this is a, a time um it made a a significant change to to the initiative process so i and this has to do with the population which is what you were talking about because as you were as you were saying we were adding like a connecticut every year or a new jersey population every year to california's population certainly i mean the, the constitutional revision was probably the least significant of the four big waves uh -huh. and, and i mean that was an effort um, really a bipartisan effort and a narrow effort. The, the attempt was, the sense was after all of these amendments to the 1879 Constitution, you know, both uh, from beginning basically in 1880 uh, to 1910 via legislative constitutional amendments, and then uh, 1911 and on, once we got the initiative process, there had been so many changes. We almost had a whole new Constitution. The document was very, very long. So there was a general sense that there were a lot of things that, that weren't really constitutional in nature and needed to be taken out. Uh -huh. So it was an edit down. We took out a lot of things. Which is uh, good. 16,000 words about mm -hmm. in the end, which was healthy. Um, it was it was uncontroversial. I mean, the, the, the many of the, the biggest revision was in 1966, and it was endorsed by both Pat Brown and Ronald Reagan as they were running against each other in a very contentious uh, campaign for governor. Mm -hmm. So... You know, but but there were some tweaks and some changes, and one of them um, was it was you know there there was there was the beginning of some tweaking there to the ballot initiative process that um, that made it a little easier to qualify a ballot initiative statute essentially. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, there were there were also it was and in that period, though not necessarily directly um, the result of this of this constitutional change, there were changes in. Um, there's an opening up of the process by eliminating a, a very onerous previous requirement called precincting, which meant that when you gathered signatures, right. you had to get the precinct of the per people. And since no one knew the number and identity of their precinct, that added a lot of time and cost where signature gatherers, petition circulators had to go look that up. Um, but once you got away with that, got away from that, it, it made the gathering of signatures easier. It made it easier to change a, a law by initiative. And it meant that um, that some very inventive people, both on the left and the right, um, started to see that there are ways to sort of 
kind of build signature gathering machines, mm -hmm. really. Um, use techniques and do things that allowed you to gather things much more quickly in greater masses and, and not cheaply, but cheaper. Um, and that sort of revived the process and, and you know, by the end of the 70s, you had people trying to do things. And I think with the success of Prop 13 in 1978, people saw, you know, you could make a hell out of hay doing this. You could, you could make big changes in California, but you could also, um, you know, convey big political messages and, and make yourself famous as, you know, as Howard Jarvis became famous as a result of that, that proposition. And uh, one of the first people to take uh, advantage of this was a man named Andy Kupal. He was. He was. He sort of came up with the table method. I mean, he was a, uh, he and his wife, um, Joyce, um, you know, were really the folks who invented the, what's still kind of the standard way of getting signatures today, which is to be in front of some sort of public building, um, some, usually shopping center or mall, and, and have one person circulating with a, um, with a clipboard approaching people for signatures and the other person manning the table. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of did this and did this aggressively, and, you know, one of the most important rules was not to engage people in any kind of substantive conversation about the issue, <laughs> to reach them, get, yell something that got them to stop, sign as many of the, the petitions on your clipboard or at your table as possible and move on. And, and, and they got a big boost from the, from the courts because there was a, a famous decision, California decision, coming out of, actually out of uh, Santa Clara County, the Pruneyard decision, yes. mm -hmm. in which the courts ruled that property owners of, of uh, owners of malls and, and uh, grocery stores, et cetera, couldn't uh, bar petition circulators from sitting in the, at the table outside their stores. So, so uh, it made it possible for the circulators to go where people actually were as we, we moved away from, from downtowns and public buildings to, to shopping malls. It's very, it's very true. And, and actually, one of the big problems in this business today, and it's adding to the difficulty and cost of signature gathering, is that the, the nature of malls have changed. A lot of the malls of that era, which had a certain design, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, we don't build those same kind of malls now. And, and, and the, the shopping centers of today um, have been more successful at keeping petition circulators out. And so what, what is happening now, one of the great complaints in this business is that signature gathering companies are beginning to hire much more aggressive people who are, who are instructed to chase you to your car in a parking <laughs> wow. garage. And they often are bigger. They, they're physically bigger people um, that look a little more menacing. So you're going to be you know, more likely to give them a signature. It's become a tougher business because there are fewer places that you can gather. Um, some people say there are fewer than 100 places in the state of California where you can legally you know, mass gather petitions. Wow, that's so interesting. And, yeah. and I love that. It, it, it's kind of frightening that they declared uh, that, Mark, as, as you said, <laughs> that they declared the malls to be the new town squares. Right. Right. It's, it's a frightening uh, comment on <laughs> what has happened to California. Now, uh, as the two of you uh, put together this book, talk about uh, finding the history and, and, as I said, editing it out. And, you know, your work as collaborators to put this, this history together, which I think is so fascinating and so nice and concise. Well, I, I, the the challenge that that we you know that we saw for California, one of the challenges is that is that we you know like all political cultures, we operate by telling ourselves stories, mm -hmm. uh, and in in California, it just seemed to both of us that many of the stories that we we tell ourselves in California are 
you know, stories that are very old in many cases. Um, a lot of them are very much outdated. They're all stories about, a lot of them about blaming somebody mm-hmm. for our current problems. So it's, you know, it's this group, public employee unions say, or or oil companies or, or, or immigrant groups or whatever that we blame in California for our problems. And, and we, we felt the need for California to have a story if we were going to get out of this position we're in. And we're really s- profoundly stuck in California mm. that that in order to, to move ourselves forward, we needed a, a story that helped explain to us better why how we actually arrived at the, at this place. And so in putting together hi- history, we, we tried to tell it in a way that that makes sense of, of, of the, the sweep of the last 160 years that tries to account for the fact of uh, the dominant fact in California, which is is change and, and, and growth, particularly in our size and, and our diversity. I mean, so many of our stories um, you know, were right at the time that when they were first told, but by the time they actually get circulated, the state has gone on and become something else again. Wow. Um, we, because we've, we've, we, our population has grown so fast and changed. I mean, you think about when, I mean, the year, in the year I was born in, 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 in 1948, um, for instance, Los Angeles was the most white Anglo-Saxon city in America. Wow. Protestant, <laughs> Protestant city in America. Uh-huh. Uh, we had this rivalry in California between Los Angeles and San Francisco. San Francisco being more Catholic uh, uh, and and uh, uh, immigrant, um, and of course, you know that in my lifetime now, I mean, uh, Los Angeles now is 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 the largest Mexican city outside of Mexico City. It's the largest Korean city outside of Seoul, Korea. It's the largest Filipino city outside of Manila. Um, you know, it's very much changed in just one lifetime. So mm-hmm. we felt like a need to tell a story that encompassed that change and and uh, it provides a background for helping us understand what we need to do, which is to have a real founding in California, which we've never had. Now, uh, Joe, talk about the uh, the birth of Proposition 13, and it came out of some tax assessor scandals. Well, you know, this is actually part of the history that Mark did. Mark and I, <laughs> our division of labor was that I, I was the one who had went back and read through all the papers of the of the 19th century, uh-huh. um, uh, the conventions from the 19th century, and a lot of the, I'd done for my first book a lot of work with the with Hiram Johnson, the progressives, and had been through his gubernatorial papers up at Berkeley. But but you know, I, I so I did the I'm the younger of the of the two, and I did the older history. You know, all the sort of 20th century stuff. Mark was alive for all of it, so he he just remembers it. <laughs> but 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 the crooked assessors. You know, okay, well you, I'll tell, tell the, the story. story. Well, it, it, it's it's it, in the middle 1960s in in California. The you know before Proposition 13, people. Uh, probably don't understand this is is that the property tax was levied by each individual government in 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 California your city as council would set a property tax rate for their services and the school board would set a property tax rate for schools um, and the the job of deciding what your house was worth was the job of the county assessor and we still have county assessors but back then the county assessors had a large amount of discretion in determining what your house was actually worth and so in the post-World War II period, as California grew very rapidly, 
you know, house prices started to go up. And, you know, if, if the assessor let the assessments of the house go up at the, at the same rate in which prices were going up, your people's property tax would go up. And they were elected officials. So assessors tended to, to you know, to, to keep assessments on houses down because they didn't want to piss off the, the voters. Um, and, uh, um, but one of the things that also happened is a bunch of the assessors in California got in the business of on the side working as as consultants to businesses. And uh, if you went out and hired the, the, the assessor as a consultant for your business, you might find that your assessment for your business property uh, was lower. The, the, and this became a scandal. Uh, the, it was started in San Francisco with, with the papers called The Crooked Assessor. Um, and it soon found that there were assessors all around the state who were doing this kind of thing, basically handing out sweetheart deals to businesses. And so what the legislature did, what any good uh, modern you know, uh, legislator would do believing in expert government, they, they decided to set a formula that every assessor had to value the, uh, the property uh, um, at at least 25% of its market, market value. Um, and the result of that was, though, that the assessors, in many cases, had been valuing houses at lower than that. And so setting a, a rule basically created a situation in which property taxes for homeowners went way up and property taxes for businesses went down. Um, and well, and just just on the <laughs> eve though of the of the great inflation of the 1970s, so so the legislature sort of inadvertently puts in place this rigid rule at the time when you know people are pouring into the state that there's general uh, inflation around the country and house prices in California are going through the roof and driving property tax rates with them. So it was one of those instances again of a of a reform that you know sounds quite reasonable, which ended up having having the effect of triggering the property tax revolt in California. You know, um, I was just talking with T.C. Boyle about the ecology of the Channel Islands, and this sounds remarkably familiar, all this unintended consequences. It, these, this whole economy is like this big Rube Goldberg machine. You just put this crank on and turn it, and all of a sudden there's start spouting steam on 10 other places. And, and this we see this happening again and again. And one of the biggest cranks we put on was, uh, was Proposition 13. Now, to get to Proposition 13, we, we have to talk a little bit about our current governor, who was, <laughs> who was sitting on what it is. He was it, president at the creation. He was. <laughs> he was. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with him about this in 2009 when he was just starting to, you know, run for governor. I mean, mm -hmm. He was sort of slow to the party, but it was apparent at that point he was going to be the Democratic candidate. And I went down and saw him in um, Imperial County, down by the by the uh, Mexican border, and asked him about this. And his defense was, well, you know, I collected this big surplus because I knew the economy was going to go bad at the end of the 1970s, and I, I knew, you know, I needed to have this cushion. At other points, actually, it turns out he's argued that he collected the surplus because of a a couple of uh, uh, important court decisions known as the Serrano decisions, mm -hmm. which um, required a, a sort of a school equalization, and they were being sort of fought out, and he would need the money to to fund school equalization. Um, that you know there was a before we, there was a sense that you know 
Beverly Hills schools had more money because Beverly Hills is richer than the Compton schools. Sorry, that's a Southern California reference. I'm the <laughs> Southern Californian in this. I don't know what the example difference would be. Hillsborough and East Palo Alto, and East Palo Alto yeah. <laughs> and for for people in the Bay Area, or or I'm not sure what. So there was this there was that equalization. But in each case, the the, the, the surplus he gathered was so large it was provocatively large. It was some mm. five billion dollars on a budget of general fund budget of fourteen billion. So you know more than a third of the budget. And so people are seeing, you know, their property taxes go up, as Mark described. At the same time, Sacramento is sitting on a big surplus. Um, and there were attempts, you know, to get um, uh, property tax relief. But they, and Brown's Department of Finance, you know, supports something very meager of the value of about mm -hmm. $200 million of property tax relief. But really the, the, the surplus fueled it, the sense that, you know, Sacramento had plenty of money. This wasn't such a big deal um, if, you know, to cut property taxes in this radical way. And no one really talked about or focused on, you know, the other things in the measure that have proven so crucial. The 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 two-thirds vote for taxes, for, for increasing uh, taxes in the legislature, and even more so, I think, the, the new restrictions on the ability of local governments um, to raise taxes, which are so profound and have so distorted governance uh, in California and became really, you know, as we argue in the book, um, we, you know, we were accused this week of blaming Prop 13 for everything, and we don't. I mean, Prop but Prop 13 provided a base on which everybody, left, center, and right, over the last three decades, has built other structures that, mm -hmm. again, try to sort of take things off the table or set particular guarantees, particular spending mandates or tax limitations or what have you. They've become the basis for a, uh, an operating system of government that was already fairly difficult and complex even before that. And, 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 and it really put us in a point where we can't really decide a lot of things or get changes um, you know, democratically by voting for elected officials who support certain policies because so much has been set in stone. And Prop 13 was really the beginning of a lot of that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, California, we hear this all the time. When when the le when you use the term Prop 13, both the left and the right hear the word taxes. Exactly. They you know the Prop 13, and it was about property taxes. One of the provisions of Prop 13, it capped the property tax rate at one percent and and limited the assessments uh, how how much they could go up while somebody still owned a house, and that that was an important piece of and, and it was very important to the homeowners at at the time. But the other parts of Prop 13 are, you know, we argue, are have been even more consequential in terms of our governance. And the Prop 13, as Joe said, uh, imposed the two-thirds vote requirement for any uh, tax increase uh, in the legislature and limited the ability of local governments to raise, to raise taxes. It also gave to the legislature the power, the duty, and the power to distribute the existing, the remaining property tax revenues among cities, counties, school districts, and special districts. So decisions that before Prop 13 that were made locally now are all made, work after Prop 13, are all made by the legislature. As we described in the book, Prop 13 was the great centralizer. Mm -hmm. it, it In a state that was growing more complex and larger, uh, at that very moment, it hands to this very small legislature 
um, all of the, the major power um, to deciding how you divvy up the, the property tax and takes that away from local governments. And that is is really at the root of a lot of lot of our problems today and a lot, and a lot of our fights over the last 30 years. I mean, people I'm sure are familiar with, you know, the local government people going out all the time and saying, well, the state is taking our, our money. Um, and they passed the measures, Prop 22 on the ballot and, uh, last November was actually a local government measure, you know, to seal off some money. Uh, in fact, it's been worked the other way around. Locals have been supported <laughs> by state revenue after Prop 13. The state took over, had to take over the due, primary responsibility for funding the schools because the property tax had disappeared. But, but uh, so a lot of our politics has been shaped over the last 30 years by this struggle the fact that we centralized all this power in Sacramento and everybody has to go to Sacramento in order to to get their local issues solved. That's uh, one of the reasons why uh, there are five times more lobbyists spending 10 times more money in Sacramento than, than the year Proposition 13 was passed. Everybody's got to go to the king in order to get anything done. Well, it's, it's kind of a sad commentary that this is all the result of... Uh, everybody wanting to be a rock star. Uh, Brown was jetting around with Linda Ronstadt and Howard Jarvis wanted to be a rock star, and he really was after that. And it's interesting to and helpful, I think, to understand the psychology of the two people, uh, Gann and Jarvis, who put this together. Because uh, now, as you say, when you hear Howard Jarvis tax group, you kind of think, my inclination is to think, oh, that's the guy who keeps my property taxes down. But that's not what he's really about, is it? Well, no. I mean, he represented Jarvis, and maybe you want to take this, but you know, Jarvis represented uh, you know apartment owners essentially mm -hmm. in Los Angeles County, right. um, and you know he that was a particular interest that was interested in lower property taxes. You know, I, I've read Jarvis's book and the like, and I don't think there was he was not a a, a believer. He didn't think a lot very deeply about governance. Mm -hmm. He was a fundamentally a populist. He used to say, I hope I can say this on the radio, better government of the masses than government by the asses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think one of the lessons of the last 30 years of California is both those kinds of government are really problematic. <laughs> <laughs> what, one shouldn't privilege either. It, one of the lessons is that you have to, when you have a, a, an instrument like you do in California, uh, of, of mass legislation, initiative and referendum, it needs to be pretty well integrated with the other. They need to be ways to, for the two to talk to each other. But we created this system going back to 1911, which allowed circumvention. And, and you know, Paul Gann was a different sort of fellow, um, kind of a cooler fellow, didn't get along with Jarvis, who mm. he felt talked too much. He was a um, you know in, in real estate in, in sort of suburban Sacramento. Um, and, you know, and a different guy I'm not sure was quite as interested in being famous, but certainly politically ambitious. Um, later, uh, a few years after Prop 13 ran unsuccessfully for uh, for the uh, the United States Senate, uh, Jarvis himself uh, had been a, a failed uh, uh, candidate for office much earlier in his life. Um, so, you know, these were politically ambitious people, but I think, you know, Jarvis was the, you know, they actually they actually fought each other. They had competing proposals mm. and what Prop 13 that failed for about a decade over and Prop 13 was Jarvis Gann. They sort of, you know, sucked it up and joined forces even though they didn't like each other very much and the partnership sort of, you know, was dead by about a year <laughs> after the, the thing passed. Well, you know, um, Mark, one of the things I think you say that's so interesting is that um, Prop 13 was 
politically polarizing and consensus requiring. And because of that, it's really at war with itself. And that's one of the big problems that keeps us so locked in a kind of stasis. Right. It's the beginning of the tax of the tax revolt. And it's the moment in our history when the Republic, the Republican Party, the taxes become the defining issue for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that uh, um, and by 1994, you know, they're, they're, with Newt Gingrich, and uh, there's the pledge that all Republicans have to have to take to oppose any tax increase at all after after the George Bush uh, first George Bush uh, um, uh, treason in 1990, I guess you'd call it. But so so taxes become the really defining issue for the Republicans. But as you say, it, we. But two third by requiring a two thirds vote in the legislature, I mean that created a system of consensus that that you really couldn't do anything that dealt with money unless both parties would agree, and yet one party uh, defined itself as not being able to agree to anything in dealing with taxes. So that's I mean that's where we are um, at the moment here in in the budget negotiations in California, where where um, uh, Republicans. Um, don't in the legislature don't want to vote for the spending cuts that are would be necessary if if the Brown uh, budget proposal uh, isn't allowed to go onto the ballot. Um, but on the other hand, they've defined taxes as um, as a defining issue for themselves, and so so we're in this. Uh, um, again, stuck uh, at this moment where they want want to oppose the taxes without having to actually vote for any of the spending cuts that would be necessary if they succeed. I mean, for all the conversation and talk that Republicans, there's this constant talk about we're against big government, we're against big centralized government reaching their lives, but they have been in California completely willing to go along and protect this system, which protect, which is all about big centralized government because they hate taxes so much. Now, um, one of the things that, that happened to this is, as all these things are added to the Constitution, as everything gets kind of, as, the, as Sacramento turns to this giant magnet that attracts all this legislation and all this kind of power, who controls what? becomes really unclear. So, and that's one of the things I think that's so interesting that I think none of us now really have a good sense of who to complain to, who we can vote against. Um, and again, the, this kind of uh, uh, the, the single uh, party districts mean that um, if you are, if the people that you represent you are you're with them and you're great but otherwise you have there's nothing you can do that's right i mean one yeah the one of the f- senses that we have that uh, a feeling stuck in California is it is as you say people don't feel like they can change things particularly they can't change the legislature and that's a consequence of of, of both the way we elect legislators, uh, which is a very familiar system around the country. I mean, mm-hmm. we elect uh, single member people from single member geographic districts by plurality vote. Um, it's a very familiar system in, in the United States. But at the same time, underneath that system, we Californians have sorted ourselves into communities of the like-minded, so that we have uh, um, you know people think alike. You know, they go to the same churches, et cetera. You know, we have a 
coast that's very blue uh, democratic in California. We have an inland California that's that's very conservative and very red. And in most parts of the state, all of the, the, the assembly and Senate races are essentially decided before anybody runs because of the partisan makeup of those of those districts. So that's one of the reasons why at the, at the center of our book, you know, the first thing that we feel like we need to do is to change the way we elect the legislature to create a system that is is uh, that there are competitive elections everywhere in the state by having multi-member districts and proportional representation. So, I mean, today, for instance, in the Bay Area, um, um, you know, there's no way a Republican get elected to the legislature. It's just that's and similarly in the interior, uh, under proportional representation. You would elect members, say, you'd have a, a Bay Area, you'd have maybe 30 members from the Bay Area in the system we, we sit, one of the systems we suggest. Uh, and those 30 seats would be divided proportionally according to how many votes each party got. So the Republicans, you know, wouldn't win a majority of the seats, but in 30, you know, in a 30 seat district, they might win 12. And if they get more people out, they might actually win, you know, 13 or 14. So every part of the state, you know, by getting additional votes, the parties would be able to potentially win extra representation. We would have what we don't have now, a real conversation everywhere uh, about uh, our legislature and the possibility of swinging it from one party to the other. I mean, statewide, in statewide elections, we go back and forth between Republicans and Democrats as governor in this state. But the legislature has been under a Democratic control for, for most of the last generation. Uh, control except for the the power of the tyranny of the minority by yes. virtue of the the two-thirds vote one of the things that really interested me was the uh, the William Muir study um, where wherein uh, they found that uh, he found that up till 1980 up till the term limits uh, issue came in um, the California legislature was really working pretty well, and that's shocking to hear, but it makes sense when, when you explain it. Yeah, I mean, William Muir is a UC Berkeley political scientist, better known as Sandy Muir, mm -hmm. who um, is conservative, actually, and, and uh, um, uh, now emeritus, who, you know, looked at... He was one of, a very interesting kind of political scientist. He he studied institutions, whether it was the police department or political campaign, by taking jobs within them for a couple of years. And so in the mid-1970s, his book wasn't published. The study wasn't published until 1982. But in the mid-1970s, he spent two years working in the legislature. And, you know, he he saw the legislature very much as a as a... a, a very effective in that era, California institution, almost like a school. It was a place where... Um, where the members were became educated themselves and also educated the public, and time was crucial to this. It, you know, in his study, it took about ten years to do anything really big and comprehensive in a legislative process because you you did it bit by bit, big piece, small piece. Ah, oh, this didn't work. You came back and fixed it, and that's how you got someplace. And and term limits um, uh, kind of ruin that because no one was in it was no one was in a legislative <laughs> body for 10 years and you know I talked to Sandy about this he he had a he, he sort of didn't have the attention but he had a when term limits swept the country 20 years ago really mm -hmm. um and you know beginning in the 1990s on through via ballot initiative in most places um he had a long debate with um you know often with George Will amongst people on the right about whether term limits were a good thing Will being for and he felt um, he'd sort of let us all down by not uh, by not winning that debate. That 
Um, you know, he had a very cynical view of legislators that he, he knew a lot and he thought a lot of them were bad folks and they were there for the wrong reasons. But <laughs> he, the way he sort of described it to me was in the best argument against term limits that he would make to conservatives was, you know, in, in, a, in a legislature, in any legislature, there are lots of bad folks there. But in, in, a, in a term limited legislature, the bad folks are still bad. And the good folks are never there long enough to sort of know what's going on and do anything good. Um, in, in one without term limits, the sort of good folks end up there long enough to sort of have a fighting chance, at least, of stopping the bad folks from doing anything too terrible. Um, and that was his argument for, for term, against term limits. Ter and term limits was one of the changes. But the other change that happened is the success of Proposition 13 did two things. First, it it made made people want to emulate um, uh, using the Prop 13 to use the ballot in order to lock policies into the Constitution. I mean, why bother, you know, to go to the to the trouble of trying to elect a lot of different people to legislature to get your your particular policy preference enacted when if you could go out and raise a couple million dollars, you could do it on the ballot and do it very very swiftly. The other thing that happened is is in response to Proposition 13 with the limit on property taxes um, and having to make cuts in government, everybody who is involved in various parts of government services began to look to the ballot measure as a way to protect themselves from the legislature actually doing what was required under 13, which was to divvy up the money, make decisions about where the money should go. So you saw the, you know, in passage in 1988, uh, in direct response to, to Prop 13 and, and the GAN spending limit that came the next year, uh, the, the CTA, California Teachers Association, got Proposition 98 passed, which carved out for schools and community colleges a share of the state budget. And, and, and over the succeeding years, we've had, had all of these measures, uh, the, the, the three strikes measure, which you know, is basically a spending measure requiring more money to be spent on prisons, and, and um, initiatives like the mental health initiative uh, that Daryl Steinberg put on the ballot uh, six years ago that carved out something for mental health and, and early childhood education and tobacco taxes and the like. And we've had this series of, of, of things, bond measures, children's hospitals, the stem cell, everybody running around the legislature um, feeling like, oh, the legislature won't give us what we want, we'll go to the ballot. And well, the legislature can't give everybody what they want because the voters had capped, capped revenue. So uh, the legislature, you know, we describe in, in the book, basically say, you know, Sandy Muir said it was an educational institution. In the book, we say our chapter on the legislature is from, from educators to janitors because the role of the, the legislature now is janitors to come sweep up after the messes that we, the voters, make. And those initiatives are graven in stone, fixed to the bottom of the sea, and based on predictions made, say, in like 1988, which are not necessarily good. We humans are really bad at predicting what's going to happen in the future. You look at Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. They got together in 1969. This, Clarke had a track record for predicting the future. He figured out that there'd be a, a satellite. They wrote 2001, which if in theory, you should have been able to read to the novel 2001 in the year 2001, and it should have some semblance to reality. It's complete fantasy. And no, that's... that's the same thing with thinking that 1988 uh, levels for education are going to work in the year 2011. Yeah, or thinking you can build nuclear power plants in a tsunami zone. <laughs> <one thing. laughs> um, no, I mean, and that, you know, that 
that fact about our initiative process is distinguishes us as a state and our mm -hmm. initiative process from every other place that uses initiative and referendum in the country and in the world. We're the only place on earth where when you enact a law, when the voters enact a law via initiative, it can't be changed except by another vote of the people, unless the original you know, language of the original initiative permits, permits amendment. Um, and that has given our, you know, a real stickiness to our situation. I mean, it's a, I mean, I, I, of all the things in the California system that don't work, that's actually the thing that bothers me the most because it means that so many key questions that I would like to have my vote count towards, you know, the level of taxation of property, uh, the, the way schools are funded, those are not really constitutional questions. Those are questions that each generation should get to make for itself. But I'm 37 years old. I've never gotten to, to really, I, I don't feel like my vote counts for those things, and those things matter a lot to me. <laughs> um, and, and so there's a sense in the state because of that um, you know, we're governed by ghosts. And, and no one else does this. I mean, other I states... idea. Governed uh, by know, ghosts. ghosts. Yeah. I mean, no other state does this. All the other states, half the states have initiative in some form, and everywhere else, if you, if you change the law by initiative, the legislative body can eventually change it. Sometimes they have to wait at times. Sometimes there's a supermajority, but they're, it's amendable, but not, not here. And that's true out in the other parts of the world that, you know, states and provinces of different countries that use... Um, it's the initiative. We are alone, and we, ha we really have the most inflexible initiative process in the world. And, and on top of it, we allow people to put things in policies into the Constitution to make them even harder to change. So, so for instance, uh, uh, back in the 1920s, by initiative, chiro regulation of chiropractors was adopted in California as a constitutional amendment. So in order to make any changes in how we regulate the profession of chiropractic in California, we have to put a, a constitutional amendment on the ballot, and the voters have to approve it. This is like um, the, the Constitution and these things are like those little insects trapped in amber from which the, they extract the DNA that creates the... It, it is like that, and it totally does not fit the, the population, culture, and dynamics and economy of the state. This is such a fast-moving, dynamic place, but yet our, our government and, and political systems are incredibly stuck. They do not allow that dynamism and, and it really means that I mean it really um, you know in some ways it's sort of miraculous the state has done as well as it has given the way it's organized itself governmentally but I do I mean I think part of what we're seeing now I mean certainly has to do with larger global economic forces mm -hmm. and what's happened in that economy but a good part of what we're seeing now is the fact that that our lack uh, our our inattention to to thinking seriously about our about governance in the state and comprehensive governance is catching up to us in a big way, and it's starting to hold us back, and and uh, and and make and it th really threatens to make our future a lot shabbier than it needs to be. Now, this doesn't have to happen though, because you guys have uh, suggested some, I think, coherent and actually achievable changes. So, talk about fixing it. Do the shackles work? Do all these things that are supposed to really help us, limiting the taxes, and, and we hear, you know, all these, all, all the whips and chains you guys talk about, all the heavy metal that we uh, subject ourselves to, those things historically have not proved to work, have they? No, and uh, there's, I mean, interestingly, you know, the people who are in California least happy with the California system 
uh, right now, uh, <laughs> California uh, reality, are conservatives, right? Mm-hmm. They have one, um, in spite of all those things that they put into the Constitution. Because uh, of. Uh, they still think that California spends too much and taxes too much. Uh, I, mean, I think that is arguably, you know, the, the, you know, evidence right there that these things, certainly they don't work for them. And on the other side, for instance, uh, Prop 98, which is a school funding guarantee, um, uh, you know, there I don't know any liberals in California who are happy about the level of school funding in California. In fact, California school funding relative to the rest of the country has actually gone down in the 20 years since Proposition 98. Uh, it's like Austin Powers, one hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean these these things don't work. And if you look around the country, which we did is in writing the book, if you look at the states that have a reputation for for being the best run fiscally, and then you look at their constitutions, they have almost no fiscal provisions in them. They mm-hmm. don't put fiscal you know fiscal policy into the constitution. They decide it. You know, in the legislature and by elections, you know, by making policies. So we would, you know, as part of our, you know, California fix that we offer, we we offer changes in the three system, the three competing systems that we have in governance in California. The one with which we, we elect the legislature, that system of supermajority requirements uh, that govern fiscal things, which is at war with the results of our election frequently. As you said, you know, it, we in fact have minority rule. And then that le- sticky and inflexible legislative process. We, we uh, propose changes in all three uh, the changes in each area designed to work with the others to create a system that which you know voters can hold uh, their policymakers accountable. Voters have more power and, and more choices, um, but the system is actually allowed to work, um, and so the voters can then you know hold the, uh, accountable if they don't like the results. Well, talk about your your um, uh, method of of doing votes because one of the things you point out it's really crazy uh, uh, how few votes somebody has to get to ascend to this huge throne of power. You talk about uh, John Perez, who who got his foot in the door with less than 5,000 votes, but yet ended up representing, what, 38 million people? Is that what is that right? Well, that's the as speaker, he's speaker of the of the assembly for yeah. a state of thirty eight million. Yeah, I mean under you know the prime the prime primary system. Now we've changed that since we wrote the book by adopting the the top two. But the jungle primary. Uh, the jungle primary. <laughs> but but the uh, um, yes, it, it, you know in primary elections, you know the plurality winner, you know get goes. To uh, to the final in districts in which the if you're the Democrat or the Republican, you're, whoever wins the primary is going to be the the the, nom, the the elected the person elected. You know, going out the door. So a large percentage of our legislature actually a majority. You could put together a majority of people who were originally elected with less than 10 percent of the votes uh, in their district. Um, could you could you explain your your system of voting? It- the the multi, the sure. I mean, I, I think Mark took a crack at it. Let me let me take one. Um, essentially, what we're suggesting is that you know we want to change the system in a way that creates political competition everywhere, where every vote counts in a way that it doesn't now. Um, and we want to have a more flexible system where there's a, the ability to change the legislature. Right now, you know, even with the legislative 
legislature's approval rating and the low double digits, high single digits, we're not, we don't change the composition party-wise of the mm -hmm. legislature. We don't have a system that allows it. And our reforms, things like redistricting and top two primary, really only have impact on the margins. And actually those two, which have gotten a lot of attention, oddly work at cross purposes. Um, <laughs> top two primary will work better if to the extent this new Citizens Redistricting Commission produces a lot of highly partisan uh, districts because the theory of top two is that is that it, it will create more moderate um, candidates in in districts that are heavily partisan because the the top two that advance will be of the same party so they will have to win by appealing to members of the other party or you know to to nonpartisans uh, that hasn't seemed to quite work yet so we think let's not do that let's do what actually works what has worked in other countries which is to have um, multi-member districts instead of one district you know one person and you may not even know where the district lines are what the you know they're sort of you know they they don't follow other sort of political and and geographic boundaries as you we, said we it's would like say, a milkshake show. we <laughs> we like the idea of right we like the idea of uh, that was mark's line um, bakersfield uh, has it looks like you know a milkshake thrown out of you know highway 99 from a speeding car on highway 99 but um, what we want is a system where we think it makes sense to have multi-member districts because you can use proportional representation, as Mark talked about. That means that every vote counts, even in a place that's very Democratic or very Republican. The more that the that each party gets people out, makes an argument, has an agenda, you know, the 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 more it gets that much closer to an additional um, an additional representative. When you you know, so the classic case is if you know you had a twenty-member district and you did all everything proportionally. And 60% of the vote went to the Democrats and 40% went to the Republicans. You'd have 12 Democratic legislators and eight Republican legislators in that district. We like that. We, we also tend to like the idea of having the districts be different sizes and they would reflect the regions mm -hmm. of the state because we really are a state of regions. Uh, uh, Mark, in a different paper, called this a nation without states. Right, I like it's that. A very, it's a, you know, we're, we're, we're nation size. We'd be the 35th largest country on earth if we were our own country. And, you know, the other countries that are bigger than, than us have some sort of regional, state, provincial kind of government to them. We, we don't. And we really are organized as regions. That's how we identify this. You're, we're here at Central Coast Public Radio, the mm -hmm. Bay Area, you know, the San Joaquin Valley, Los Angeles. Um, I mean, I feel, I'm from Los Angeles, and I feel more Angelino than Californian, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Um, and I think that identification works well in organizing districts because unlike legislative districts where you don't know where you are, everyone sort of knows what region they live in. Everyone is, you know, riding the same buses, driving the same roads, watching pretty much the same local television, um, experiencing the same weather. Um, th there's a sort of basic cohesive force of basic citizenship of regions that should be reflected in, in it makes that a natural. It also means that people will know, will be more likely to pay attention to a big um, regional race for the legislature. Media will be more likely to cover it. I mean, right now the LA TV station that that covers an assembly race is foolish. It's shutting out more than ninety percent of its audience. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it, and and that and we think that argument and and if you do that, if you have that kind of system where everyone knows that their vote counts everywhere, where there are arguments and campaigns everywhere around the state. And you have the system that's more flexible. The, the partisan composition of the legislature could change, and the minority party would have a real chance, which it doesn't have now of getting back into power. Then we think you can. That opens the door to taking out and makes it easier to take out all of these super majorities and other whips and chains and mandates, 
out of the Constitution because you'll have a, a you know a, a legislature that everyone felt like they had a hand in electing, and and that and and then allowing majority votes for big questions is possible because you can really hold that legislative majority accountable. accountable. Exactly. Um, you know, right now, I mean, I do think when we ask Republicans to sort of say, well, give up the two-thirds, give up the two-thirds, but they don't really have an election system that, are, that gives them a, a shot. So, you know, I think you have to do all of these things together. And, and you know, I think that's a, a key message of our book, that you can't try to fix things in isolation or one at a time, which is how we tended to try to do things. You really need to do this comprehensively and in one big moment and, and very open process where all the different pieces have to be looked at and redesigned so that they fit together. And you like a unicameral legislature too, don't you? Yes, I mean it's one. I mean, a it's easier to to organize the the proportional representation uh, using a unicameral legislature. Uh, one of the the things in order to have a good proportional system of the kind that Joe just talked about, the legislature has to be bigger than it is now. Um, we only have 120 members in the in in the legislature, um, or 80 in the assembly and 40 in the senate. If you had a unicameral legislature of 120, you could make a multi-member district system. Work. I mean, ideally, the system, the legislature should be much larger than that. I mean, 360 uh, would be about make us. Uh, we would still have legislative districts that are the largest in the country, but they would at least be within shouting districts of the next largest state. Right now, we're 10 times larger than the national average. That's really crazy. Now, you also uh, talk about changing the balance, and I think this is very interesting uh, between. Um, the initiative and the referendum, and I think this is uh, one of the key key things that that I I found very interesting. Well, because the initiative process is so inflexible, I mean, you can put something in forever. It has a lot of power. It has a, a great draw to it. I mean, as as Mark said, you know, initiative constitutional amendment on one day with fifty percent plus one, you can make a big change in the constitution. That's a lot easier than than trying to elect a whole new majority of folks in, in our system. So. Um, we have a strong bias towards the initiative when you compare us to other states and certainly to other countries. Um, to change a law by initiative uh, statute is actually easier than to referend a law. The referendum is a kind of vote where you're voting on what the legislative body has done, yes or no. They've passed this law. They've taken this action. You say yes or no. You pass judgment. Initiative is you're initiating a new law or constitutional amendment. Our system is very much set up to make it easier to do initiatives. There's more time for initiatives and referendum. The signature standards are pretty much the same. Um, so even when people want to referend something, they want to block something that the legislature does, they usually use the initiative in California. Mm. Um, there were two, a couple of failed initiatives um, this last November, uh, one to uh, overturn the AB 32, the sort of the, the climate change regulation, mm -hmm. and another to overturn a, a, a corporate tax cut that were really referendum, but they were initiatives because it's so hard to do referendum. The other places make referenda easier. It's more of the standard um, kind of, of process. In, in California and Western United States, we bias towards initiatives. So we want to make, by making initiatives more flexible, by allowing the legislature to amend it, by letting, making it easier to make fixes and changes and compromises on the front end of the system, by giving the legislature the power to, uh, to put a counterproposal next to an initiative right on the ballot next to it and create, a, we think, a more substantive campaign um, to make it harder to um, change the Constitution by initiative. You shouldn't be able to do it with just a simple majority on one day. Um, those things, we think, would make the initiative less attractive, but in return, 
we'd like to revive the referendum, the real conversation with the legislature. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that seems core to direct democracy, a direct conversation, not a circumvention via initiative, but direct democracy conversation to be able to tell people yes or no on the big things they've done. So we would make it easier to qualify referendum. We would make it, um, might expand the kinds of things that can be referended and try to make the referendum the more the, the more common type of of ballot measure because there there's real value to that when you're looking at a referendum you're looking it forces you to look at how and what the people your elected officials did I mean it's a way of keeping them more honest it's a very healthy thing I mean the Swiss and Switzerland was the original inspiration for direct democracy in the Western United States a century ago when it was adopted mm -hmm. in places like California the Swiss you know, have a much stronger balance towards referendum. And a, a Swiss official, when I was visiting an election there, told me that, you know, a referendum is a conversation, an initiative is a scream. And I think that's about right. <laughs> we just we just always scream in California. Um, and I'd like to have more of the Swiss culture where when their legislative bodies do big things at the federal and the state cantonal level, there's a tradition of the thing being knocked down, being, being turned aside, the first one or two or three or even four times that the legislative body does it with the expectation, that, you know, the people say, no, that's not quite right, and the legislative body tinkers and tinkers and tinkers until the people say yes. I think that's a sort of a healthier kind of direct democracy. Direct accountability. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you think about an issue in California like uh, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, the, I mean, the legislature, um, you know, three, four years ago passed... Uh, you know, uh, a, a law which was vetoed by at the time by Governor Schwarzenegger for, for allowing same-sex marriage in California. If we had the system we're talking about, that that could have the opponents uh, of that could have put it on as a referendum. They could have knocked it down. Uh, but the one thing we know, for instance, with the demographics in California, is eventually in California we will. Uh, permit same-sex marriage. I mean, the young young people, you know, under 40, overwhelmingly support it. The people oppose it are people in my gener uh, generation. We're passing from the scene. We know what's the the change is going to be. But in California, it's going to be very difficult to get there because Prop 8 put it in the Constitution. So it's going to take now another initiative, constitutional uh, uh, initiative, to 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 eventually change that. Uh, we would have been better off. We would have had a better conversation if we could have had this back and forth between the legislature and the voters. And you you guys describe the uh, Constitution as barnacled. <laughs> I think it's a great... A I think great that's right. Mark is better at metaphors, and I think that was his. <laughs> that's on a boat, right? <laughs> yes, that is. is I'm we, from inland Southern California okay. originally. <laughs> we have, I mean, we have 7,000 governments in California, uh, different, different governments, special districts, cities, counties, school districts, redevelopment agencies, uh, uh, and the like. So uh, we, where we talk about that the, the need to devolve power from Sacramento back to local government. There's also a need at the local level in California for, for consolidation and re, remaking a lot of our local institutions so that we don't have so much overlap. And, uh, you know, this is a very complicated, we're complicated and sort of crazy people in California. People who are complicated and crazy need a simple government. As mm -hmm. you, you said earlier, Rick, I mean, California government is incomprehensible to most people. I mean, 
know, I have worked my entire 30-year career in journalism in, 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 in California, and it, it's been a full-time job over 30 years for me to understand, uh, understand these things. Uh, ordinary people, you know, going about their day-to-day lives can't do that. We, should, we shouldn't expect them to have to do that in order to govern themselves well. So we need to make the system simpler, lines of authority and accountability cleaner so that people can feel like they have some control over things, but we can actually function in a, uh, in a complex state. And one of the things you guys point out is that the California's present is the future of some a number of other states. And I think as we see the filibuster turned in, in, in the U.S. Senate into a kind of uh, supermajority requirement, it's looking a little bit like uh, maybe even our nation as well. I mean, it's true. I think particularly in the last few months, I've been struck by in a number of these states where Republicans made big gains um, in legislative legislature and governors. They've wanted to 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 add supermajorities. They particularly on the tax issue has been something that's put on the on the table. Um, and that I, I mean, I tell you, if if you want to do that, think about the state of the California Republican Party and its ability to win elections. Because you may be able to block things, you know, certain things you don't like, but it is very hard to be the minority party in that kind. When you end up being the minority party in that kind of situation, you end up with, you can sort of, I mean, I think Republicans in California are sort of guilty of a Stockholm syndrome. They, they've come to love the thing, these two-thirds votes, which keep them relevant, but also which keep them in electoral chains. They'd be much better off in a majority vote system with, you know, with better election systems where they could not vote for any of this stuff and not be holding up the cards and simply say, here's our different alternative. Here's how we would do things differently. Vote for us the next time. Uh, that's a much stronger position to be in. But they're in a position where ultimately their party always gets split by this because eventually the budget does have to pass. I mean, or, you know, there's going to, you know, something, we've now changed that, but something has to happen and, and Republicans do have to go along in this system. And ultimately that splits them. They're in a really bad way in this system, though they cling to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting right now. I mean, California Republicans have power to say no to some things uh, and stay in the minority. But you look at what Republicans are doing uh, elsewhere in the country, whether it's it's uh, Governor Christie in, in New Jersey or Governor Kasich in, in Ohio or Governor Walker in Wisconsin. In those places, they won elections and they're actually being able to do something more than say no. They're actually being able to sh- reshape policies that California Republicans hate but have no ability to, to do anything about in California other other maybe than through the initiative process. There is an advantage, you know, in systems where majority where the voters pick the majority and let it rule that you can actually govern and change policies in, under that system. They 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 can only say no in California. And then in those other systems, they can also be held accountable. And that's what can't happen here in California. It's too blurry. Right. I've been speaking with Joe Matthews and Mark Paul. Their new book is California Crack Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It. Thank you for joining me, Mark and Joe. Thank you, Rick. My pleasure.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.